The Russian and Chinese presidents have just wrapped up two days of talks in Moscow. Putin is binding Russia's future to China, but there's a risk that in doing so, Russia can lose control of its own destiny. It's Tuesday, March 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll have the latest on the highly watched state visit. Also, Los Angeles school custodians, cooks, and bus drivers are on strike, and teachers have walked out to support them. Researchers from Boston College and around the world release a sweeping report calling for international regulation of plastics in order to protect people's health. The people who live near the factories that produce plastic are exposed to the toxic chemicals that those factories vent into the air. Those of us who use plastic every day in our lives are exposed to chemicals that leach out of plastic. It's 4.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A grand jury is expected to vote soon on whether to indict former President Donald Trump. Trump has claimed without evidence that he's going to be arrested today and has called for protests. The former president and now candidate for the 2024 presidential race has been the subject of an investigation into a hush money payment to an adult film star with whom Trump allegedly had an affair. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's running the probe. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports. Bragg has pressed forward. Under Trump, he has convicted Trump's company. Trump's company was found by a jury to have committed 17 felonies. So there is certainly on his side that a jury of Trump's peers has found that his company committed a crime. And that is a self a powerful rebuttal to the idea that the prosecution is somehow made up or politically motivated. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reporting the probe faces GOP backlash. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports House Republicans are wrapping up a three-day retreat in Florida today. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy insisted that GOP lawmakers are focused squarely on their agenda. Plans to pass energy legislation, a parent's bill of rights, and border security measures. He and other Republicans have dismissed Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's investigation of Trump as purely political and say it won't stand up in court. So it's not here that we're coming to defend President Trump. What we're coming to defend is equal justice in America. But GOP lawmakers launched their own probe of Bragg and are demanding he testify before Congress. So the debate over the former president's legal situation is expected to continue to be a focus for Trump's allies on Capitol Hill. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Orlando, Florida. U.S. stocks end the day higher as a critical Federal Reserve meeting got underway. NPR's David Gurr reports Wall Street's waiting to see if the Fed hikes interest rates again to fight high inflation when there are still concerns about the banking system. Shares of regional banks continued to rise as the banking system showed signs it's stabilizing after the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and UBS's emergency takeover of Credit Suisse. California-based First Republic Bank, which has faced an exodus of customers, saw its share price go up more than 30 percent, regaining some of the ground it's lost in recent days. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the Biden administration would consider stepping in again if there were more bank runs at other smaller banks. Meanwhile, Federal Reserve policymakers are debating whether it makes sense to continue raising interest rates to fight high inflation, given all the uncertainty and unease in markets. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow closes up nearly 1 percent. The Nasdaq was up 1.5 percent, and the S&P picked up, ending at 1.3 percent. This is NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. An eviction prevention law in Massachusetts is set to expire at the end of the month. The state put it in place earlier in the pandemic. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports advocates for renters want the law extended. The law requires that eviction cases be paused when a tenant has an application pending for rental assistance. Andrea Park is an attorney with the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. She says the state should temporarily extend the law while lawmakers consider making it permanent. We're early in the legislative session, so until that bill has a chance to be debated and considered and go through its process of being heard, this is really just to try to get past the March 31st date without having a lot of people who are waiting on their rental assistance be evicted when there is a solution. Advocates have written House and Senate leaders and the trial court requesting an extension to July of next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to expand access to pre-kindergarten in the city. She's opening up applications for community child care providers to become universal pre-K partners. Later this month, family child care centers will be included in the expansion. In total, the city hopes to create 300 new seats in pre-K classes. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden is calling for unified regulations in all states in order to buy guns. Hayden says 76 percent of the guns police seized in 2021 at crime scenes in Suffolk County came from out of state. He says many are from New Hampshire and Maine. Just last week alone, we saw six new firearm arrests in Suffolk County, one with a suspected murderer and another one involving a teenager in possession of a firearm. And we've had two more gun arraignments yesterday. So it is the number and volume of guns that are on our street that needs to be addressed. Hayden says there needs to be a national unified purchasing policy. He's calling on Washington to approve legislation that will make a difference. For the first time, next year's Women's Beanpot Championship will be played at the TD Garden. The title and consolation games in the college hockey tournament will take place there. Previously, only men's beanpots were held at the home of the Bruins. Women's teams competed on rinks on college campuses. Supporters of the change call it a step toward equality for women's sports. Well, it'll get cloudy overnight tonight. Temps will dip to the upper 30s. The sun will peak through the clouds tomorrow. We'll see a high around 53 degrees. Thursday looks wet. The chance of showers will increase in the afternoon. Temperatures will get to the upper 50s. And Friday, another chance of showers with temps in the low to mid 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Russia's President Vladimir Putin and China's President Xi Jinping have wrapped up two days of discussions in Moscow. This is their second meeting since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Well, the two leaders vowed to conduct even more trade, to deepen other ties, to work together more closely. The backdrop to all of this is ties with the U.S., with the West in general, remain strained for both countries. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of our correspondents, John Ruich, who covers China for NPR, and Charles Maines, based in Moscow. Welcome, you two. Good afternoon. So this was a summit between China and Russia, but I gather the elephant in the room was Ukraine and the war there, and that China had arrived having put forth a set of principles for potentially trying to end the war. Did that go anywhere? John? 
Yeah, China's been styling itself as sort of a peacemaker, or at least a party that could help resolve, help solve the Ukraine crisis. It put forward this 12-point position paper, which were broad principles. There's also talk of Xi Jinping having a discussion with uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky after this Moscow visit. You know, Putin and Xi Jinping had seven hours of talks over two days. They made statements at the end. And it has to be said that Xi's remarks on Ukraine were very bland. He repeated that China wants peace. He said he's looking forward to more discussions on the matter. They basically had nothing to announce. Yeah, no, Putin came in acknowledging the Chinese plan, telling Xi in front of cameras that he had studied the Chinese proposals, he respected the ideas and was eager to discuss them. And yet it seemed like these talks ended with this peace initiative as vague and undefined as when they began. In a statement to the press, Putin said provisions of the Chinese peace plan could be taken as a basis uh, for settling the conflict in Ukraine whenever the West and Kiev were ready for it. But Putin added that Russia hadn't seen any evidence they were. So there's not a lot there, and perhaps it's not even surprising. Russia had made it clear it wants Ukraine to accept what Moscow calls the new geopolitical reality of its annexation of Ukrainian lands. Uh, Ukraine and its Western allies see the progress Ukrainian forces have made liberating territory from Russia and say, you know, why stop now? And there's a sense that she might have been able to force Putin to accept some sort of ceasefire or peace deal, but that clearly just wasn't the case. Okay, so sounds like uh, very little progress on Ukraine, alas. Charles, did they agree on anything? Any any major headlines here? Yeah, you know, fundamentally, this seemed to be about showing that China and Russia were united in grievance. You know, they both feel the West is trying to hold them down, and they're making common cause of it. The two sides signed this massive joint statement aimed at deepening the Russian-Chinese relationship for a, quote, new era, uh, while insisting it wasn't a military political bloc. Uh, in a dig at NATO, they said that that idea was an outmoded concept from the Cold War. And yet there were also a lot of agreements focusing on the economy, with Russia offering to provide, for example, gas, and oil, and energy for China's economy. Also important to note what wasn't in the mix, uh, no public mention anyway of Chinese arms sales to Russia, although a Putin advisor said it was discussed uh, without elaborating. That's interesting. So Russia promising energy investments in China. We're not hearing Chinese arms sales to Russia. John Ruich, this sounds like a pretty good deal from China's perspective. Yes, it does. You know, more oil and gas from Russia is a good thing. The price is low now, given the way the Ukraine war has changed the market for Russian energy. Uh, there was a pledge to deepen coordination and resilience of production and supply chains. That's something China's uh, focused on. It's good for China. It helps diversify away from the West. Maria Repnikova is an expert in Chinese and Russian politics at Georgia State University, and she says China did well. Well, I think she got more out of it than Putin. Basically, China getting a better economic deal out of Russia at this point because Russia has so few allies left. More broadly, you know, as Charles points out, this meeting signaled pretty strongly that they're on the same page with regard to the West um, and that they've got each other's back. But I wonder, is the trade-off that they've got each other's back, but with every inch that China sidles closer to Russia, does that move it towards worse relations with the West. It probably does. I mean, if there had been progress toward bringing the war in Ukraine to an end, that might have been a saving grace. It might have made the trip more palatable to many in the West. You know, Putin was just accused of war crimes, uh, and there was an arrest warrant issued for him by the International Criminal Court. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken just yesterday said Xi Jinping's visit was effectively giving diplomatic cover to the Russian leader for that. Um, and the U.S., of course, still suspects China is considering providing lethal assistance to Russia in the war in Ukraine, which is a proverbial red line, right? China 
doesn't seem to care at this point. You know, Xi Jinping has said that the West, led by the U.S., is bent on encircling and suppressing China, and Beijing suspects the same is happening with Ukraine, uh, that they're using the war to weaken Putin, uh, which would be bad for China from Xi's perspective. Charles, what about from Putin's point of view? It strikes me that Putin doesn't have very many powerful friends right now in the world. How much does he need President Xi? How much does Russia need China? Badly. And in that regard, this was a win for Putin the moment she stepped off the plane. I mean, here's Putin isolated with a warrant out for his arrest. And yet within a few days, he's sitting with Xi, who calls him a dear friend and compliments his leadership of Russia. But make no mistake, you know, Putin is the junior partner in the relationship. Russia is under Western sanctions. It desperately needs Chinese investment and trade to keep its economy afloat. And in fact, Putin was at times a bit over the top in his flattery of Xi, telling him, for example, he was a little envious of China's economic success. And that kind of gets to a criticism you hear here in Moscow, uh, that in binding Russia's future so closely to China, uh, Putin is in danger of losing control of Russia's own destiny. Stakes are so high here. Uh, John Ruich, you get the last word. What about um, President Xi? Now in his third term as the leader of China, what did we learn about him on this visit? She is stronger than ever, right? He, and he remains defiant. I think that was a message from this visit. You know, many believe that there had been signs a few months ago, of perhaps a softer tone out of Beijing or some flexibility in China's approach to the West, maybe a willingness to cool the temperature, right, to get China's economy back on track. But with the spy balloon incident and now this trip to Moscow, it does seem that that has evaporated. That is NPR's John Ruich and Charles Maines. Thanks to you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hundreds of thousands of students stayed home today as a labor strike shut down Los Angeles public schools. The Union for Support staff, people like custodians and bus drivers, began a planned three-day walkout. And the teachers in the nation's second-largest school district joined them in support. At the center of this disagreement are demands for wage increases, better benefits, and fewer staffing shortages. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo takes us around Los Angeles today to the demonstrations and protests. The first day of the strike started dark and early at 4.30 a.m. outside the Van Nuys School Bus Depot. Even though the sun wasn't up yet and the sky was dumping rain, hundreds of bus drivers and supporters walked up and down the sidewalk, chanting for fair treatment. For many, like Maria Betancourt, they start every morning at this time at this very depot. I love that everybody came out even in the rain to support this uh, this cause, you know? We need we need everybody to come out. Betancourt and the other members of Service Employees International Union, Local 99, came out despite the weather because to them, this is important. They feel their demands for higher pay, increased staffing, and health benefits are the bare minimum. They're asking for a 30% raise spread out over four years, among other things. The district has offered 23% over five years with additional bonuses, but the union says that's not enough. The years-long fight for a new contract has left them feeling disrespected. I don't think that they're, they want to listen to us, our needs. A few hours later, the union's executive director, Max Arias, echoed those same concerns at a demonstration outside Robert F. Kennedy Community Schools in Koreatown. If LAUSD truly values and is serious about reaching an agreement, they must show workers the respect they deserve. Yes. We've had enough of empty promises. 
Workers are especially livid today because last night, both parties agreed to mediation, a confidential process meant to finalize an agreement. But before the union could get their team into the room, they found out that the superintendent's office had disclosed the news of negotiations to the media. The union then backed out, and the strike went ahead as planned this morning. Arias says the move soured an already tenuous situation. The district needs to work to rebuild the trust, uh, but we're here, right? The, the goal is to to find a, to get a good contract, not to strike. 96% of members voted to approve the strike. One of those members was Yolanda Mems Reed, a special education assistant who says she works four jobs in order to afford to live in LA. I work for in-home supportive services. I do hair, and I also have an online boutique. To her. This raise would mean everything. It means being out of below the poverty line. And it means letting go of one of those jobs so I don't have to spend all my time working. I can spend some time with my family. Since many of the union's workers are part-time, it leaves them in precarious positions during the off-season. During the summers, managers don't want to hear that you don't got pay to pay rent, that you don't make money. They don't want to hear that. So you get the notices and you get evicted and you go a couple of maybe sometimes a couple of months without a place to stay, staying with family and friends until you find a new place. And then the cycle repeated itself for three years for me. Superintendent Alberto Carvalho says he's sympathetic to the position many workers have been stuck in and hopes that there's still room for a resolution. We are much closer than we've ever been before, but being that close is not enough. And uh, I believe there's enough goodwill to bring us to the table and to see through towards a solution that considers the employees, considers the students, but also acknowledges the fiscal reality ahead. Carvalho says the district's finances cannot survive such an increase. So uh, we have to be cautious in the way we use the resources, not overcommitting, uh, possibly putting the district in a bankruptcy position that not only is it not prudent, it is illegal in the state of California. For now, Students and parents face the unfortunate reality of two more days with schools closed. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, Los Angeles. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll have a profile of prosecutor Alvin Bragg, who would be the first prosecutor to bring criminal charges against a former U.S. president if President Trump is indicted. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed out the day on an upswing. The Dow gained just under one percentage point, or 316 points, ending up at 32,561. The S&P went up 1.3 percent to close out at 4,003. NASDAQ jumped 1.6 percent to 11,861. In business news, First Republic Bank rose nearly 30 percent in trading today. That follows a 47 percent drop yesterday. Investors have been trying to digest news from last week, 
that 11 large banks were depositing $30 billion into First Republic to prevent it from collapsing. Today, investors seemed to be reassured by comments from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She said the government is prepared to provide more guarantees of deposits if need be. WBUR supporters include the Box Center, presenting Arlo Guthrie, What's Left of Me, a conversation with Bob Santelli at the Box Center Schubert Theater, April 1st. Tickets at boxcenter.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows shouldn't go lower than the upper 30s. Tomorrow is looking partly sunny. Temperatures will be in the low to mid-50s. Then things will get a bit wet overnight tomorrow into Thursday with the greatest chance of showers Thursday afternoon and evening. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. We're going to spend the next several minutes talking about obsession, the guts of it, the contradictions of it, the suffering of it. And we're going to examine obsession through the eyes of a Korean-American woman living in Berlin who works as a copywriter for a canned artichoke heart business. And in this otherwise mundane life, she finds spiritual, romantic, and intellectual awakening in her devotion to a K-pop superstar named Moon. Now, she remains unnamed as the central character in the new novel by Esther Yee called Y slash N. But maybe her anonymity is for the better, because there is something so universally recognizable in her religious fervor and loneliness, in her distortion of reality as she admires from afar. There is something about her that is in all of us. Esther Yee joins us now. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So for those who may not get it at first, can you just explain the title of this book, Y slash N? Sure. The title stands for Your Name, and it appears in a type of fan fiction that uh, allows readers to insert their name into that slot and thereby play out the events of the story, which, um, of course, usually involves a romantic encounter or story of some kind with the celebrity or the fictional character in question. Well, you know, I get a sense that when we meet the main character, the narrator, at the beginning of this book, her life is missing something. What was your sense of what is missing from Mm -hmm. this person's life? I always imagine Moon almost as a knife, kind of a violent figure. And I don't mean that in in a willful way, but that he seems to be exposing some kind of wound or void in these characters' lives. And is both offering fulfillment, but also exposing that void. And I think the exposure of that void can be full of potential for an individual who's experiencing that. But it can also be a moment of great, of course, um, it's it's leaving open a lot of possibility for disappointment, for um, lack of fulfillment, yeah. for never reaching that goal. And so the nature of that void, I guess that's the kind of one of the mysterious questions of the novel. What is the nature of this particular narrator's void? 
And it certainly has something to do with love, of course, some desire for intimacy, some need to be able to practice devotional <laughs> exercise. Yeah, let's talk about that, because you describe the fandom, the idolatry around this K-pop band almost like a religion, like each member of the band is named after some celestial body. You know, you have Sun, Mercury, Venus, and of course, Moon, who becomes the main character's ultimate fixation. Tell me, how do fandom and religion overlap in your mind? Well, to speak, I guess, specifically to my narrator's case, it seems to me that she wants, and again, related to this desire for love and to practice devotion, but it seems to me that she is capable of meditating upon a single object for a very long period of time. Um, and of course, there's a lot of irony in the fact that she is choosing to <laughs> practice this meditation upon one of the most, you know, poppy, one of the most um, energetic and frenetic and colorful and vivid and uh, rapid paced forms of cultural consumption right now. Mm. But that's where she wants to do it. I'm not, I'm not judgmental about, you know, K-pop or about um, celebrity culture. That's really not my intention for the book. Um, I'm not a journalist. Uh, I'm not here to write some kind of takedown or critique. I'm just very curious about this form of worship. And I and I take it very seriously in some sense. Um, but it seems to me that it's speaking to some kind of some kind of absence within our current landscape of possibility. Yeah. yeah. You also, you know, in this story, write about how living inside your own head presents a contradiction that you call insurmountable. You write, she can never have it. That's why she loves it. She loves what she cannot have, but she will die if she cannot have this thing she loves not being able to have. Tell me, how much is this story a cautionary tale about not living in reality? Yeah, there's definitely a question of like the practical, what does she practically want? What does this narrator practically want to achieve with Moon? Does she even care about practicality? In some sense, I suppose she does because she goes all the way to Seoul to try to find him. And I won't reveal the end of the novel, but in some sense, she gets some form of what she thought she wanted. But that seems too easy. It doesn't seem like what she wants is some kind of practical togetherness. So perhaps she doesn't want reality. And I don't see the novel as a cautionary tale against anything, to mm -hmm. be honest. It's mm -hmm. um, it's simply documenting this one individual's attempt to uh, perhaps experience something beyond the boundaries of her given conditions, beyond the boundaries of her human consciousness, which of course for any person is an extremely dangerous thing to embark upon. Either you are sent over to the other side and possibly you never come back to reality, you never survive it to tell the story, or you come back and you're probably a little bit destroyed, <laughs> to put mm -hmm. it mildly. Yeah, I think I think the narrator is certainly skirting some kind of boundary, testing some kind of boundary between reality and fantasy. Uh, whether or not she should be blamed or critiqued or criticized for attempting this, that's certainly not my concern. Yeah. Um, it's more about what happens when, why, why does one feel drawn to test that limit? That interests me. And what happens when one comes close to that limit? And what happens when you either come back or you cross over completely to the other side? Let me ask you about you. I mean, you you are of Korean descent. You were born in the U.S. You now live in Germany. And I was wondering as I was reading this book, was there a part of you reflected in this rabid fandom that this main character feels? Were you ever totally obsessed with something like she was? <laughs> uh 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's my life. What's your consistent obsession? What's the consistent one? It yeah. would be literature. <laughs> it's a very nerdy answer, so it's not as exciting as K-pop or <laughs> some celebrity. Um, I can't say Brad Pitt, unfortunately. No <laughs> offense to him. It's um, it's just literature. It's the writers that I love. That is really my key obsession, art. Yeah. And what did you tap into when it came to your personal obsession with literature or whatever else that shows mm-hmm. up in this novel? Um, yeah, I mean, I can talk specifically about, this is a little bit, I've, I've always wondered whether I should even talk about this because it's definitely a little bit embarrassing, but that's kind of the point <laughs> <laughs> that it's going to be embarrassing. So I'll just say it anyways. I began writing from a young age for a variety of reasons, but one of them was because it was kind of my only way of interacting with the objects of my desire. But that was how creativity began for me. It was like in this despairing manner that creativity began. And I think for that reason, I find fan fiction, especially a really interesting and really rich mode of expression that, of course, a lot of people look down on because it's, you know, it lacks a certain literary polish. Mm. But I respect that about fan fiction. <laughs> like, I respect that fan fiction is so is so much the product of a compulsion, of a yearning, that it almost forgoes all of these pretensions of, of polish, of quality, of um, sophistication. And in that sense, for me, there's something that's revealed at the heart of fan fiction that I think is essential to all great literature, which is this desire to put yourself in the same space as the transcendental, you know, to almost touch the hem of it without really quite grasping it. Esther Yee's new book is Y slash N. Thank you so much for being with us, Esther. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour on All Things Considered, a sweeping report out today from scientists at Boston College and around the world calls for regulation of plastics to protect people's health. Taking a look at the forecast, we'll have increasing clouds tonight and a low around 39. Tomorrow should be partly sunny with temps in the low to mid-50s. Then Thursday, some rain is likely, especially in the afternoon. We'll have highs on Thursday in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Nearly half of all public schools in this country have one or more open teaching positions, and schools are desperate to fill those vacancies. We're going everywhere to find good teachers. We have a lot of openings. We have a shortage of math teachers. All of the above. Math and science are hard to fill areas. Yeah, a little bit of everything. We go to the understaffed schools tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Here in Los Angeles, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, custodians, and other L.A. Unified support staff are on strike in protest of stalled contract negotiations at the second-largest school district in the country. NPR's Liz Baker reports from one of the picket lines. Despite the exuberant atmosphere, Jessica Nunez calls this a sad day. She's been a campus aide for 10 years and says she's barely scraping by. It's sad because we shouldn't come to this point, you know. It's like, how are we going to live with what we made, you know? 
The average salary at LAUSD is $25,000 a year, with many part-time workers living below the poverty line. The school district has offered what it calls a historic contract, but is reluctant to meet the union's demand of a 30% raise over the next four years, citing decreased student enrollment. The strike is scheduled to last three days. Liz Baker, NPR News, Los Angeles. Speaking at a White House summit on conservation action today, President Biden announced his administration has established new national monuments in Nevada and Texas and a marine sanctuary southwest of Hawaii. Biden calls the monuments national treasures that he says define our nation's identity. You know, our national wonders are literally the envy of the world. They've always been, and they always will be, essential to our heritage as a people and essential to our identity as a nation. That's why the budget I released earlier this month includes new funding to increase access to our natural areas for Americans from all backgrounds. Biden designated Nevada's Aviquame and Kastner Range in Texas as new monuments with plans to create additional protections around Hawaii and the Pacific Islands. This news comes as environmental activists protest Biden's approval recently of the Willow oil drilling project in Alaska. This is NPR. Hong Kong has arrested a prominent former lawmaker and activist on national security charges as part of an ongoing crackdown on the city's most well-known civil society leaders as Beijing uh, asserts control over Hong Kong. We get more from NPR's Emily Fang. 71-year-old Albert Ho was arrested from his home in Hong Kong around noon local time. Hong Kong media captured the arrest on video as the elderly lawyer was let out with his arms cuffed behind his back. Ho was already facing another set of national security charges of subversion, which, if he were found guilty, would already put him behind bars for a decade. Before that law was enacted, Ho was part of a group of activists who organized annual commemoration events in Hong Kong of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, the bloody suppression of pro-democracy protesters in Beijing in 1989. Earlier this month, three other organizers of that vigil were sentenced in Hong Kong court to four months in jail for their advocacy work. Emily Fang, and Pure News, Taipei. In Detroit, automaker Dodge rolled out its last gas-powered muscle car today, saying it will be the quickest production car ever made. Stellantis says the 2023 Challenger SRT Demon 170 can go from 0 to 60 miles per hour in less than two seconds. That's faster than even electric supercars from Tesla or Lucid. Stellantis plans to stop making gas versions of the Dodge Challenger and Charger this year. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. National Grid customers in Massachusetts will soon pay less for their electricity. State regulators today approved the company's request to lower its electric rates. National Grid says that will save the average residential customer more than $100 per month. The new rates go into effect May 1st and will be in place through the end of October. New England public media in Springfield is laying off roughly 20 percent of its staff. The NPR affiliate and public television station broke the news to employees today. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. The layoffs affect 17 people. They include the team of the weekly television show Connecting Point. The station is ending the program. In a statement, NEPM management says the station faced financial headwinds during the last three years. Financial statements from 2021 to 2022 show that higher costs far outpaced any growth in revenue. In the last month, NEPM television and radio staff began a planned move into a new facility in downtown Springfield. 
The layoffs come as the network NPR prepares to lay off 10 percent of its staff this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Students and parents who are part of METCO are asking lawmakers for more money for the program. A group of them went to the State House today to ask for a nearly $3 million funding boost over last year's level to keep up with inflation and expand the program to new schools. Governor Maura Healey is proposing nearly the same amount of funding as last year. METCO sends more than 3,000 students from Boston to surrounding suburban school districts. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. It'll be partly cloudy tonight. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. We'll see the sun through the puffy clouds tomorrow. It'll be around 53 degrees. Then Thursday, we'll likely see showers and temps in the upper 50s. Friday should be mostly cloudy in the low to mid 50s. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. If Donald Trump is to be indicted this week, the prosecutor in charge, the first prosecutor ever to bring criminal charges against a former U.S. president, would be Alvin Bragg. He's the district attorney of Manhattan. He's been in the job just 15 months, which has been plenty of time for President Trump and his allies to call Bragg biased. This is a political witch hunt perpetrated by one of the far-left radical socialist district attorneys in Alvin Bragg. That is New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik speaking today on Fox News. Whereas people who actually know Alvin Bragg describe him as generally not interested in political fights. Journalist Erica Orden found that as she reported on Bragg for a profile for Politico. Erica Orden, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So Alvin Bragg is 49 years old, lifelong New Yorker, the first black person to serve as Manhattan DA. Briefly, give me a little bit more of his background. What's he done prior to this job? Sure. So his two sort of biggest um, uh, biggest uh, things on his resume were that he was a uh, assistant U.S. attorney in the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, he worked largely under pre-Perara, um, and he prosecuted a number of cases there. He did a lot of money laundering cases and a variety of other things. Um, and he was uh, he worked for a number of years in the New York Attorney General's office, okay. and ultimately he became the chief deputy attorney general in that office. And among the cases he has prosecuted in past, he's prosecuted the Trump Business Organization and the Trump Foundation, right? That's right. When he was in the New York Attorney General's office, he uh, supervised a lawsuit against the Trump Foundation that resulted in Trump personally paying a $2 million settlement. And earlier this year, uh, while he was in the DA's office, his office won a criminal tax fraud trial against the Trump organization. Okay. Um, He is 
when you read about him, he's often described as progressive. Um, mm-hmm. Some of his more progressive initiatives so far as DA in Manhattan have provided ammunition for Trump and his defenders. What has he done that his opponents have seized upon? Well, he had a quite a bumpy start to his career in the district attorney's office. Two days after taking office, so January of last year, he issued a memo that directed assistant district attorneys to largely avoid prosecuting minor offenses. He told them to stop charging many low-level crimes and to avoid seeking jail time for many robbery, assault, and gun possession possession cases in which no other crimes were committed. Mm. So there was a big uh, sort of internal backlash to that um, directive. And there was also vocal criticism from a variety of outside sources, including the police commissioner, police unions, and conservative media outlets. Well, I want to I want to drill down a little bit more on his politics. It's, of course, in possible to peer into anyone's minds, but you've talked to a lot of people who know him who doubt that he has any political axe to grind here. What did they tell you? Well, most people who have talked to him, you know, clearly he he has progressive beliefs and he has tried to institute those in the office, but most people who know him, who've known him for a long time and have worked for and have worked with him or for him, believe that he, he really is not seeking any other higher office. In other words, he, he his ambition is not to have a political career. He is obviously in elected office and he got there by, by campaigning and going out on the campaign trail, but sure. they don't believe that he is a, a political animal and that he is... Um, he is in pursuit of a political career in the few other seconds, than being district attorney. Forgive me. In the few seconds we have left, he will inevitably face attacks, political attacks, if he does bring this case. Do you get a sense that Alvin Bragg cares? Well, uh, people who know him say that he is he's somewhat uh, immune to the sort of uh, public relations um, uh, offenses that mm-hmm. d- that Donald Trump tends to enjoy bringing against his opponents, um, and you know he's a human being. Uh, I, I would imagine that he, you know, some level of criticism uh, get, gets to anyone, but right. uh, in in large part, people who know him say him say he won't be bothered too much by those. Erica Orden of Politico, her profile of Alvin Bragg is out now. Thank you. Thank you. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the aftershocks of a massive bank run that toppled two regional banks in the last two weeks appear to be fading. Big depositors are no longer pulling money out of other banks, thanks in part to emergency actions taken by the government. But critics worry those actions could put smaller banks and their customers at a disadvantage. To explain all this, NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. So Yellen spoke to a gathering of bankers in Washington today, just as the dust is still clearing from two of the country's biggest bank failures. What exactly does she have to say? Yellen says fears of a wider bank run are easing. Treasury officials have been monitoring the banking system since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York. And there were some big withdrawals early on, but Yellen says those have stabilized. That's partly because the FDIC acted very quickly to say depositors at the two failed banks would get all their money back. Now, ordinarily, the government only insures deposits up to a quarter million dollars per account, but Yellen says the cap was waived in this case. And that helped limit the fallout and discourage big customers at other banks from getting nervous. The public should have confidence in our banking system. And it's our intention to remain vigilant in the days and weeks to come. 
The Federal Reserve also set up a new program to lend money to banks if they need it to cover withdrawals so they don't have to sell assets at a loss. And all this appears to be working. Bank stocks are up this week, and so is the broader stock market. Okay, that all sounds good, but there's been pushback, right, like from banks that are smaller than Silicon Valley and Signature. Tell us why. Yeah, the two banks that went under were not giant institutions, but they certainly weren't tiny. Silicon Valley Bank in particular has grown a lot in recent years. And smaller banks around the country, the kind that cater to small businesses and farmers and just ordinary customers, wondered if they would have gotten the same kind of help from the government if they got in trouble. Oklahoma Senator James Langford put that question to Yellen during a a Senate hearing last week. Will the deposits in every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of their size, be fully insured now? Will they get the same treatment that SVB just got or Signature Bank just got? And Yellen's answer last week was, not necessarily. That kind of extraordinary help would only be extended, she said, if it looked as if there were a danger of a more widespread bank run. Now, that worried a lot of community bankers because it might encourage their biggest customers to pull money out of small banks and move to a bigger bank where they might be more likely to get government help. Well, how did Yellen address those concerns when she met with bankers today? She said the administration really wants to preserve all kinds of banks, big, medium, and small. Uh, She acknowledged small banks often know their communities and their customers and can offer services in a way that big banks can't. Uh, She says the government isn't trying to prop up any one bank or any one category of bank, but rather the whole banking system. And she left the door open to doing more for small banks. That means potentially intervening if a smaller bank experiences the kinds of difficulties we have seen that pose the risk of contagion. You know, uh, Elsa, before all this happened, the government thought a bank run at a small institution would probably stay small and not require a lot of government attention. But now officials are reevaluating just how contagious even a bank run that starts out small might turn out to be. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. While Major League Baseball is still gearing up for opening day, the World Baseball Classic has been on fire. The WBC has provided thrilling moments this month, and it wraps up tonight with a championship game between two baseball powers, the U.S. and Japan. This fifth edition of the tournament has been a big hit with record attendance and TV viewers, but injuries to prominent players are also giving fuel to WBC critics. Well, let's bring in NPR's Tom Goldman. Hey there, Tom. Hi. I confess I've been trying to understand what exactly the WBC is. Um, (laughs) Is it correct to say the World Baseball Classic is to baseball what the World Cup is to soccer? It is. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. And and do they get like as excited as World Cup fans do? Oh, boy. Um, Well, let's illustrate by taking a snapshot from last night. Japan played Mexico in a semifinal game, bottom of the ninth inning, Mexico leading by a run so close to getting to its first World Baseball Classic final. But then Japan puts two men on base, infielder Munitaka Murakami comes up to bat, here's the call on Japanese TV. (laughs) 
How's that for some unbridled passion there, unbridled. Mary Louise? Unbridled, I would agree, yeah. <laughs> Kyoto News described that as a sayonara two-run double, a walk-off winner by Murakami. Probably safe to say the tens of millions of Japanese fans watching reacted like the play-by-play announcers. Yeah, I mean, I was having fun just listening to them. Um, <laughs> do fans in other places, fans around the world, get, get this excited about it? Oh, they do. And and I will give you some numbers to back that up. Total attendance in the first round at the last World Baseball Classic in 2017 was a little over 510,000, this time over a million, huh. most ever. Games held at the Tokyo Dome in Japan broke attendance records. In Phoenix, more than 47,000 fans turned out to watch Mexico shock the U.S. in an early round game. Nearly 36,000 turned out in Miami to see the U.S. beat Cuba in a semifinal game fraught with political meaning. Uh, St. Louis Cardinals veteran pitcher Adam Wainwright, pitching for the U.S. in that game, called it as wild an environment as he'd ever pitched in. Uh, TV ratings broke records, too, from Taiwan to Korea to Puerto Rico to the Dominican Republic. Wow. Okay. All these injuries, though, who's hurt and what effect might it have? Well, yeah. Before I tell you that, understand this. One thing that held back the popularity of the WBC in the past, many top major leaguers didn't sign on, saying it wasn't worth the risk of injury that might jeopardize their major league season. This time, though, some of the biggest U.S. stars did play, led by L.A. Angels outfielder Mike Trout. Once he signed up, other U.S. players followed. But yes, the injury bug hit. Edwin Diaz, the all-star relief pitcher for the New York Mets, playing for Puerto Rico, tore knee ligaments while celebrating a win over the Dominican Republic. He's out for the season. Houston Astros star Jose Altuve, playing for Venezuela, got hit by a pitch, broke his thumb, he's out indefinitely. So you can see why there's been hesitation, and players may cite this tournament is why they don't play in the future. Innocent, it's Tom, tonight's big game, the defending champion, the U.S. versus Japan. Who's your money on? Oh, boy. I'm, it's so tough. They're both awesome teams. I'm going to say Japan, but absolutely won't be surprised by a U.S. win. How is that for a cop-out? Uh, it's a cop-out, but we'll let you get away with it, <laughs> and we'll check back with you and see how it goes. NPR's Tom Goldman, thank you. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, a Canadian lawyer who was brought in to advise Saddam Hussein's defense team looks back at the trial and the lessons learned about justice. But first, we'll talk with a Boston College researcher who joined with scientists around the world to release a sweeping report on plastics today. They say plastics are harming our health and should be regulated. That's up next here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. It'll get cloudy overnight tonight. Temps will dip to the upper 30s. The sun will peak through the clouds tomorrow. We'll see a high around 52 degrees. Then Thursday looks wet. The chance of showers will increase in the afternoon. Temperatures will get to the upper 50s on Thursday. Friday should be mostly cloudy with temps in the low 50s. It is 57 degrees right now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. 
Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Governor Maura Healey joins us for our monthly check-in. Lots going on, from her search for new leadership at the MBTA to investments she wants to make in early education and clean energy. Plus, she's got a new hire focused on making sure the state gets federal money when it applies. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Plastics are ubiquitous in our daily lives and our environment. Single-use plastics like water bottles and shopping bags make up more than a third of all plastics. An international commission led by researchers at Boston College published a sweeping report today that says plastics are causing such harm to our health, it's time for global leaders to regulate them. The chair of that commission is Dr. Philip Landrigan. He's a pediatrician and epidemiologist whose previous research led to major changes surrounding lead and pesticides. Landrigan directs the Global Observatory on Planetary Health at Boston College. He says scientists are expressing urgency about plastics because production has accelerated rapidly. More than 8,000 megatons have been produced since World War II. More than half of that has been made in the last 20 years. And the production rate is projected to treble by between 2050 and 2060. And part of that is driven, the report says, by fossil carbon producers looking for ways to make up for some of what they're losing in our broader move away from fossil fuels. Is that correct? That's right. You have to understand that 99 percent of plastic comes from coal and oil and gas from fossil carbon. And the very same companies that extract coal and oil and gas from out of the ground are also the companies that make plastic and that make fuels. Global demand for carbon fuels is going down, and they need to find markets for those. One of the markets to which they're pivoting are plastics. So the commission you chair is made up of scientists, clinicians, policy analysts from around the world. It formed last year after the United Nations Environment Assembly adopted a resolution that calls for the first ever legally binding international treaty on plastic. And your group, the commission, spent months putting together this report that goes into incredible detail So let's touch on some of the main points. First, we're exposed to chemicals from plastics in lots of different ways, from the environment to our direct use of plastic. Can you touch on different ways we're exposed to the chemicals in it, how they get in our bodies, and the different ways they can harm our health? Yeah. So people in this country are exposed to the toxic chemicals in plastic at every stage of the plastic life cycle. So, for example, the people who live in small towns in Pennsylvania are Oklahoma, where fracking is widespread, are exposed to all the toxic chemicals that are released into the air during fracking, which is the first step, really, in plastic manufacture. And then the people who live near the factories that produce plastic are exposed to the toxic chemicals that those factories vent into the air. Those of us who use plastic every day in our lives, we and our children are exposed to chemicals that leach out of plastic during use uh, into our food, into our drinking water. from our clothing. And then in terms of health impacts, I know there's a a huge range of potential impacts. Can you touch on just a few of those? Well, many of the chemicals that are in plastic are highly toxic. They include chemicals that can cause cancer. They include chemicals that can damage the developing brains of children in the womb. They include chemicals that can disrupt endocrine function and immune function. 
And exposures to these chemicals during the nine months of pregnancy and in the first couple of years of childhood are especially dangerous because even very, very small doses of exposure to these toxic chemicals in early life can damage a child's health over the next seven or eight decades. Right. I was shocked when I read in the report that there are more than 10,000 chemical additives used in plastics at this point. That's right. And that's almost 10,000 is almost certainly a conservative estimate. What do you think we should do as individuals and families to limit our use of plastics and reduce our body's exposure to the chemicals in plastics? I think that we as individuals should do what we can. We, we should try to switch from plastic disposables to glass or metal containers, for example, in, in the kitchen, in our homes. As a pediatrician, one of my mantras is never microwave in plastic because when you heat the plastic up, that accelerates the movement of toxic chemicals out of the plastic container and into the food. What you need to do is take the food out of the plastic container and put it into a, a glass or a ceramic container before you put it in the microwave. So the commission is pushing for a global plastics treaty, and you want that to regulate plastics and end plastic pollution by 2040. How specifically do you want to see that happen? Well, first and foremost, an agreed-upon global cap on plastic production. Secondly, steps need to be taken to reduce the toxicity of the chemicals that go into plastic. Thirdly, we need to find better ways to manage plastic waste. Uh, we need to increase the recycling rate from 8% to 10 times that. And fossil fuel companies and the companies that make plastic need to be financially responsible for their products even after they sell them which means they have to have tape backs or deposits or pay into a remediation fund to handle plastic waste after it's created. We are arguing that the industry has to take responsibility for the cradle-to-grave handling of the materials that they produce and sell. Dr. Phil Landrigan is a pediatrician, epidemiologist, and director of the Global Observatory on Planetary Health at Boston College. He chairs an international commission that published a report today in the Annals of Global Health urging action to regulate plastics worldwide. Dr. Landrigan, thanks so much for joining us. Lynn, thank you. We reached out to the Plastics Industry Association for their reaction to the report. In a written response, they say any international agreement should emphasize recycling and recovery methods that reduce plastic waste. And the association says plastics have countless vital uses, while alternative materials would increase overall consumption of energy and other resources, leading to more carbon emissions. The industry association says plastics are safe and that manufacturers take human health seriously and believe in producing sustainable products. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. 
Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have increasing clouds tonight and a low of 39 degrees. Tomorrow should be partly sunny with temps in the low 50s. Then Thursday, some rain is likely, especially in the afternoon, with highs in the upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. And Worcester Cultural Coalition. The Hanover Theater presents the Grammy and Tony Award-winning musical Town, March 28th through April 2nd. WorcesterCulture.org. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 20 years ago, a Canadian lawyer advised Saddam Hussein's defense team. Today, he looks back at the trial that was supposed to set an example for justice, but fell short. Saddam Hussein's victims deserved a more dignified proceeding It's Tuesday, March 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the freewheeling Autobahn could get a lot more speed limits. Germany is considering it. Today, the Autobahn is 8,000 miles long. 70% of it has no posted speed limit. And some Germans are pushing back. People in Turkey are doing their own investigations into the poor building construction that contributed to the losses in last month's devastating earthquake. And drama in the golf world. The ball used by professional golfers might face a makeover. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin are pledging to strengthen political and economic ties between their two countries. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, two days of talks between the leaders have not appeared to make any progress toward ending the war in Ukraine. China has portrayed itself as a potential broker of peace in Ukraine, having put forward a set of principles to wind the conflict down. And Putin said those could form the basis of a settlement. But he said Russia had not seen evidence that the West and Kyiv were ready for it. For his part, Xi stuck closely to China's standard script on the war, a sign that little progress seems to have been made. On China-Russia ties, Xi said the relationship was brimming with dynamism and vitality. The two sides reached agreements on economic cooperation, including in oil and gas, as well as agriculture, and in collaboration on fundamental research and other areas. She also invited Putin to visit China later this year. John Ruich, NPR News. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson admits he misled Parliament over parties that violated COVID rules, but says it was not on purpose. As NPR's Frank Langford reports from London, Johnson could face suspension or expulsion from Parliament. Johnson said his previous insistence that all government rules were followed was based on what he knew at the time and were made in, quote, good faith. A group representing families of COVID victims said Johnson's good faith claim was sickening, and it was obvious he deliberately misled lawmakers. Johnson will present his defense to a parliamentary committee in a televised hearing on Wednesday. 
He's accused the committee of being highly partisan. Britons have already made up their minds about Johnson. A poll last year found that the most common word people used to describe the former prime minister was liar, followed by untrustworthy, idiot, and buffoon. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Despite widespread reports it's imminent, so far no word from a grand jury yet on a possible indictment against former President Donald Trump at issue are hush money payments made on behalf of Trump to former porn star Stormy Daniels. Or there's also no official indication on when or even whether Trump will be indicted in connection with the payouts. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the government's efforts to safeguard bank deposits following the collapse of two regional banks are working. NPR Scott Horsley reports. Yellen says while the banking system has come under pressure in recent days following large-scale bank runs in California and New York, bank withdrawals have stabilized. The Treasury Secretary says that was the goal of emergency measures by the FDIC and the Federal Reserve. Every step we have taken has been intended to reassure the public that our banking system is resilient and that we stand behind the banking system. Some smaller banks worried that the government's moves might encourage depositors to move their money to bigger banks. Yellen stressed that banks of all sizes have an important role in the economy. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Climate activists in Boston are calling on banks to divest from fossil fuel companies. More than 200 people took to the streets of the city's financial district today to send that message. As WBUR's Paula Mora reports, the group was largely made up of retirees. A man with a solar-powered chainsaw cut in half giant Chase and Bank of America cards. Other people broke their own cards. Mary McCabe is 61. She brought a poster with a baby picture of her son on it to say the young will be more affected by climate change. And we keep hearing reports uh, in the news every day about how our window for preventing catastrophic damage keeps closing. Um, And that really this decade is critical for us to take action. Chase Bank and Bank of America did not comment on the call to divest. Both say they are supporting a transition to a low-carbon economy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. The former head of the state's sex offender registry board will not be getting any additional compensation from the state. That's the result of a court ruling today and a legal fight stemming back to 2014. In that year, then-Governor Deval Patrick fired Sandra Edwards because Edwards wanted Patrick's brother-in-law, Bernard Sy, classified as a sex offender. Sy had previously served time in prison in California for raping Patrick's sister. Edwards sued after being fired, and last fall a jury awarded her $820,000 in damages. Today, a judge denied her request for additional punitive damages, saying Patrick's conduct wasn't sufficiently egregious. More disruptions are in store this week on the MBTA's red line. Shuttle buses will replace trains between Braintree and North Quincy stations tonight, tomorrow night, and Thursday night. The change will be in effect from 8.45 p.m. through the end of service each night so the T can perform maintenance work. This weekend, shuttle buses will replace red line service between Harvard and JFKU Mass. The city of Cambridge is starting a pilot program for street cleaning. Vehicles will no longer be towed for violating parking rules during street sweeping hours, but fines will increase from $30 to $50. The new approach will start next month and run for a year. 
In the forecast, some clouds will move in tonight. It won't get super cold. The low will be around 39 degrees. Tomorrow should be partly sunny with temps in the low to mid-50s. We can expect showers Thursday with the greatest chance of rain in the afternoon. The high will be in the upper 50s. Friday looks mostly cloudy with temperatures in the 50s. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A grand jury in Virginia today indicted seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital staff members of second-degree murder in the death of Ivo Otieno. He died March 6 at the Central State Hospital just south of Richmond as he was being restrained. And a warning, this story will include details of how he died at the hands of police officers. Whitney Evans of Member Station VPM has been following this case and joins us now. Hi, Whitney. Hi. So can you just remind us what exactly happened to Otieno? Right. So Otieno was in the custody of seven sheriff's deputies who were admitting him to the state mental hospital earlier this month. Three days earlier, one of Otieno's neighbors had called the police to report a potential burglary. When sheriff's deputies arrived, it was clear that he was suffering some sort of mental health crisis. So they took him first to a regular hospital on an emergency custody order. They said uh, he'd become combative there and assaulted deputies. So they then changed, uh, charged him and took him to jail. When they finally brought him into the state hospital for evaluation, a video shows sheriff's deputies and hospital workers were piling onto Otieno, who who was handcuffed and shackled at the ankles. You can't see much movement from Otieno. All you see is him being dragged into the hospital admissions room and then a group of people holding him down. Right. And towards the end of that video, it appears deputies are trying to revive Otieno. Do we know precisely how he died? Not yet. The official cause of death hasn't been confirmed. But the prosecutor in this case has said she thinks Otieno died from asphyxiation due to the weight of the deputies on his body. And you'll see in the video, which the Washington Post published late last night, that Otieno is barely visible because his entire body is covered. Mm -hmm. He doesn't appear to be fighting back or even struggling. He makes very little motion, um, but he's eventually just lifeless. The video has no audio, so we have no idea what's being said while the deputies and hospital staff pile on him. Other hospital workers were just standing around watching, occasionally jumping in to help restrain him. However, again, he's already pinned to the floor, shackled and handcuffed. Right. Well, what about the officers and hospital workers in this case? Like, what are they saying in their defense? We're getting very little information from the defense right now about the facts of the case or what they'll be arguing. But we did hear from one of the attorneys today. He's asked the judge to seal evidence moving forward to protect the integrity of the case. And he wants to make sure evidence like that video that the Post leaked uh, doesn't go public again. Uh, Here's Doug Ramsor, who represents one of the Central State Hospital employees. I think everyone wants to make sure that this case gets tried fairly for all sides in a courtroom where it's supposed to happen that way. We don't want people to make up their own minds through a viewing of evidence that isn't with the right lens or the right filter or because there's been comments that have been inflammatory because they may be affected by the way they've seen other things. Now, the local Fraternal Order of Police extended their condolences to Otieno's family, but the group has publicly stated it supports the deputies and their defense. Its members are also fundraising from their Facebook page to support the deputies' families. What about Otieno's family? Like, how have they responded to all of this? 
They held a press conference on Monday with their attorneys after they'd watched the video. It was before it had gone public. They were completely shocked kept asking why this had to happen. Otino's mother said they treated her son as if he were less than human, as if he were a dog. She spoke to the strong ties the family has to the community, how Otino was brought to Virginia as a four-year-old from Kenya. Otino's brother was in town visiting. He said what he saw in that footage was a homicide. That is Whitney Evans with VPM in Richmond. Thank you so much, Whitney. Thank you. Twenty years ago, many Americans thought of one man when they heard the word Iraq, and that was Saddam Hussein. The White House said he had weapons of mass destruction. He didn't, though he had used them against his own people years earlier. When the U.S. invaded Iraq two decades ago this week, it captured Saddam and set up a trial that was supposed to exemplify justice. NPR's Deborah Amos reports on how it went wrong. Ladies and gentlemen... We got him. December 2003. Saddam Hussein is dragged out of a hole in the ground near Tikrit, his hometown. Regime change is a rationale for the U.S. invasion. This is Saddam as he was being given his medical examination today. In Baghdad, American officials announced Saddam's capture. As important, an announcement that Saddam would face justice in an impartial Iraqi court, a step towards the rule of law as Washington promised, creating a new democratic Iraq. A flawed project from the start, says political analyst Hussein Ibish. I don't think it's possible to understand the willingness of so many people to go along with the fantasy of reconstructing Iraq without the anger of 9-11. The sense that we have to do something really big in the Islamic and in the Arab world. And this is something. At the CIA, intelligence officer Emil Nahle, a Middle East specialist, was alarmed by the growing chaos he had warned the White House in his briefings. In the end, they did not listen, really. They had planned to go to war way back right after 9-11. You know, we are the superpower, the only superpower. Of course we can remove Saddam with no problem. Except there was because we did not think about Monday morning. The trial of Saddam Hussein opened today in Baghdad. That chaos was the backdrop for Saddam's trial two years after his regime was toppled, seeping into the judicial process that was supposed to be a model. Iraq had become a volatile mix of violence, a growing insurgency hostile to the U.S., a brewing sectarian war. The grievances of Iraq's Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds played out in the Iraqi courtroom. Saddam wasn't supposed to be a defendant in that trial. The plan was to start with lower-level officials, says Faisal Istrabadi, Iraq's first U.N. ambassador after the invasion. This was supposed to be a practice run for the judges because they were applying international law for the first time. You know, trying a murder case is not the same as trying a mass murder case. But Iraq's Shia Muslim leaders were in a hurry, he says. They demanded the trial start with a mass murder indictment of 148 Shia men in the town of Dujail. The former Iraqi dictator faces charges of crimes against humanity for ordering a mass killing of Shiite men in 1982. 
Bill Wiley, a Canadian war crimes investigator, was observing the trial for United Nations when American officials tapped him to be an advisor to Saddam's defense team. It was a last-ditch move to make this a legitimate trial with a credible defense. Because the defense lawyers were generally pretty bad, I ended up writing a lot of the defenses for Saddam and the other accused. Still, the evidence was overwhelming. Direct orders signed by Saddam presented in court. The verdict guilty, with more indictments to come. A genocide charge for gassing an entire town of Kurds in the 1980s, dropping chemical weapons from helicopters. Then, the murder of 90 members of the Dulaim tribe, all Sunni Muslims. But instead of an orderly court process, the Shia-led government seemed intent on revenge rather than justice. Over the objections of the U.S. then-Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki rushed the execution of Saddam Hussein. We have some new tape in of the execution of Saddam Hussein, which has voice. The headline, Istrabadi heard waiting to be interviewed in a CNN studio in New York. Saddam's execution video had been leaked. I was a sitting ambassador when he was hanged. My job's to defend my government. The images were shocking. Saddam stands on the hanging platform. He is mocked and insulted by a motley crew of Iraqi witnesses. He looks down on them. He's literally got the noose around his neck. And in Arabic, he said, is this manhood? I'm watching it live. And I made a decision. I would not defend this. The this in this shaky video, the deeply sectarian priorities of the new Iraqi government. What I said was, this does not look like the state executing just punishment and Saddam Hussein's victims deserved a more dignified proceeding than this. The proceedings were widely condemned. Saddam's last moments celebrated in some quarters. The images added fuel to the fire of Iraq's sectarian civil war, says Bill Wiley. And you've got guys chanting and having a party there and with the body. It was seen as a utter debacle. So it looks like a Shia government taking revenge on behalf of the Shia. Faisal Istrabadi heads a Middle East Studies Center at Indiana University. He now teaches the lessons of the U.S. invasion. Bill Wiley heads CJA, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, providing documents and expertise in Syrian war crimes trials in Europe. Now he's working on Ukraine. We're working with the Ukrainians because they asked for our help. They have gathered immense, immense, immense amounts of material from the battlefield. For Wiley, even though Saddam trial went badly, the lessons learned in Iraq informed his approach to Syria, how to manage a mass of evidence, how to build a complex war crimes case, and important to share with Ukraine, how to go up the chain of command and indict the leaders who gave the orders. Deborah Amos, NPR News. The 
The opioid fentanyl crisis has had a disproportionate impact on Native American communities. The leader of the Cherokee Nation says addiction is disrupting so many families that it threatens his people's language and culture. But the Cherokee Nation is fighting back. The tribe received $100 million in settlements from big pharmaceutical companies accused of fueling the opioid epidemic. How the community is spending this money. That's the big story today on NPR's daily afternoon news podcast. Search for Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll hear from the Los Angeles school superintendent on the three-day walkout by district workers that started today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. On Wall Street, stocks picked up some ground today. The Dow inched up just under one percentage point, or 316 points, ending up at 32,561. The S&P jumped 1.3 percent to close out at 4,003. NASDAQ gained 1.6 percent to get to 11,861. In business news, investors are providing $40 million to a Boston-based company that wants to become the go-to source of shared patient health records in America. Zeus Health announced the funding last week. The health data platform company was created by CEO Jonathan Bush. Bush used to lead Athena Health. Zeus Health says it will use the funding to hire new employees and grow its platform. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. Well, if you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing while listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. It'll get cloudy overnight tonight. Temps will dip to the upper 30s. The sun will peak through the clouds tomorrow. We'll see a high around 52 degrees. Thursday looks wet. The chance of showers will increase in the afternoon. And temperatures Thursday will get to the upper 50s. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. Introducing the 2023 Solterra an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Germany is known for many things. Beer, World War II, cars, which brings us to the Autobahn. That is the country's network of highways where you can drive as fast as your car can go. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, a movement to introduce a speed limit on the Autobahn is gaining momentum and leading to some soul-searching. This is the sound of the Autobahn inside Alex Gruller's Mercedes. Das ist ein Mercedes. This is a convertible S-Class with an AMG engine, 612 horsepower, and its top speed is 192 miles an hour. 
Griller knows this because he's driven it that fast, but only a few times a year on vacant stretches of the Autobahn near Cologne. I'm a car enthusiast. The first word out of my mouth wasn't mama or papa, but auto. I love driving, and I love driving fast, but I only do it when it's safe. Griller wears black-rimmed glasses, a black cashmere sweater, and a striped cream-colored blazer. The advertising exec says he'd prefer an Italian sports car, but he sticks with an understated Mercedes because, he says, Germans feel self-conscious about showing off. But he insists Germans should not feel self-conscious about their Autobahn, a movement to introduce speed limits on speed limit-less portions of the national motorway is gaining momentum. And years ago, when the government began introducing limits of 80 miles an hour on many stretches of the highway network, Gruller started a campaign against these limits. Having no speed limit is part of German culture. The French are obsessed with wine, the Americans love their guns, every nation has its cultural characteristics. We have no speed limit, and it's a freedom we've enjoyed for decades. It's part of Germany's DNA. Indeed, many aspects of modern German culture, including this 22-minute ode to the Autobahn by German techno music icon Kraftwerk, are infused with this sense of freedom. A roadway without limits, an ideal platform for German industry to showcase the technological superiority of its immaculately engineered highways and automobiles. And that was precisely how the Nazi leadership saw the Autobahn that it inherited from the post-World War I Weimar Republic. Nazi propaganda films like this one employed popular music of the era to showcase Adolf Hitler's promise for building an Autobahn network across Germany. These propaganda programs mixed music with skits devoted to the glory of the Reichsautobahn. I'm very anxious to get going and still more curious of the results when we have finished. Well, let's go. One of these skits meant for an English-speaking audience portrayed a race between a British visitor and his German friend. The Brit takes the country roads between two points and the German opts for the Autobahn. When they meet up, they compare notes. The German says he used his brake just five times. The Brit, 165 times. The instruments cannot deceive, and the cars perform beautifully. The German Reichsautobahn will impress the world. I listened to these radio shows from the Nazi times on the Autobahn, and I was, how to say, surprised how good they are. Konrad Künze is author of the book Deutschland als Autobahn, or Germany as Autobahn. He says the Nazi leadership closed factory floors and stores so that Germans would listen to Hitler's speeches and these radio dramas about the Autobahn and how it symbolized German superiority. The Autobahn as a collective piece of architecture is connected to an idea of Volksgemeinschaft. Um, that was a Nazi idea that like all Germans are uh, somewhat a harmonious uh, nation. A nation that, like its showcase roadway, was rapidly moving forward without any limits. And in some ways, Kunze says, this unifying idea around the Autobahn survived beyond World War II as Germany continued construction on the network, again making it a distinctive feature of the country. Today, the Autobahn is 8,000 miles long. 70% of it has no posted speed limit. 
Every single study on CO2 emissions and speed limits comes to the same conclusion. We can save millions of metric tons of emissions by introducing a speed limit on the Autobahn. Stefan Gelbar is a Green Party lawmaker in Germany's parliament. His party has called for a blanket speed limit on the Autobahn of around 80 miles an hour in order to save more than 2 million metric tons of CO2 emissions each year. Two parties in Germany's three-party ruling coalition are in favor of this measure. But the libertarian FDP party is blocking it, calling this limit on the freedom to speed unnecessary. Gelbar compares the debate over a speed limit similar to that around gun restrictions in the U.S. The debate around freedom and security is definitely similar. There are people who associate a concept of freedom with driving fast or carrying a gun. And there are people who say that my sense of safety is massively threatened by someone hurtling past me at more than 160 miles an hour. Alf Luchau knows this personally, in the worst way. Eight years ago, the now 72-year-old therapist got a call from the police saying his ex-wife and 15-year-old daughter had been hit from behind by a car on the Autobahn. My wife was driving a small car. She signaled left, and as she was pulling out into the next lane, a car driving 120 miles an hour slammed into her. His ex-wife died instantly. His daughter was taken to the hospital in critical condition, and Luchau jumped into his car and headed there. I wanted to get there as fast as I could. Sorry, I need a moment. She was still alive as I drove to the hospital. My friend who was with me told me to slow down. Of course, it's so ironic that I was speeding to get to my daughter who'd been in a crash caused by a speeding car. When Luchau arrived, it was too late. His daughter, Sophia, had died. I see cars as weapons in Germany. I almost think you need something like a weapons license if you'd like to drive a car here. According to road accident statistics from last year, 34 people per million Germans died in car accidents, but only 5% of those accidents occurred on the Autobahn. Germany's fatal car accident rate is among the lowest in Europe and is more than three times as low as the rate in the United States. Luchow says it's an uphill battle introducing a speed limit on the Autobahn because the German economy is dependent on an auto industry that uses the Autobahn as a selling point. But he thinks the tide may turn soon. In the most recent poll, 60% of Germans agreed on introducing speed limits. And even Autobahn enthusiast Alex Gruller thinks the government should add some restrictions. I don't think Germany should require drivers to get an extra license for driving cars of a certain caliber. I don't agree with 18-year-olds having the right to drive an 800-horsepower car. But as far as a blanket speed limit on the Autobahn, Gruller says, it would take away a freedom that he thinks is synonymous with being German. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Berlin. This is NPR News.
Thanks for being with us this afternoon on WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a Fox News producer has sued the network, saying Fox lawyers who prepared her to testify in the Dominion Voting Systems case misled and coerced her. And drama in the golf world. The ball used by professional golfers might be changing because some say it's changing the character of the sport's classic courses. We'll see more clouds overhead tonight. Temperatures will get down to the upper 30s. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, around 52 degrees. Right now it's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com. Nearly half of all public schools in this country have one or more open teaching positions, and schools are desperate to fill those vacancies. We're going everywhere to find good teachers. We have a lot of openings. We have a shortage of math teachers. All of the above. Math and science are our hard-to-fill areas. Yeah, a little bit of everything. We go to the understaffed schools tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The leaders of China and Russia emerged from two days of talks with joint criticism of the West, but no sign of a diplomatic breakthrough over Ukraine. Russia's Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping issued familiar accusations today that Washington was undermining global stability, while Xi barely mentioned the conflict in Ukraine at all, saying China remains impartial despite Beijing offering up a peace plan. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says there can be no peace talks with Russia unless it withdraws its troops. China wants to play a constructive role here in this conflict. Then they ought to press Russia to pull its troops out of Ukraine and Ukrainian sovereign territory. They should urge President Putin to cease bombing cities, hospitals and schools to stop the war crimes and the atrocities and end the war today. It could happen right now. The summit is the biggest display of diplomacy between the authoritarian leaders since Russia invaded Ukraine more than a year ago. The Oklahoma Supreme Court issued a ruling today that will broaden medical exceptions to the state's abortion ban from member station KGOU. Catherine Sweeney has more. The legislation Oklahoma lawmakers passed last year included exemptions for medical emergencies, but the wording was vague. It didn't explain what conditions would qualify. Legal and medical experts said this was concerning because it left doctors wondering how much danger was enough to protect them from a decade in prison. Abortion access advocates challenged the laws in the state's Supreme Court in an effort to get them overturned. That didn't pan out with this lawsuit, but the court did rule that Oklahomans have the right to life-saving abortions at any time in the pregnancy. The majority wrote, Requiring one to wait until there is a medical emergency would further endanger the life of the pregnant woman and does not serve a compelling state interest. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. An international commission led by researchers at Boston College is calling for the adoption of a treaty to regulate plastics. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more on a report the group issued today detailing how plastics can harm our health. About 22 million tons of plastic waste enter the environment each year, and plastic production generates nearly 4% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. That's according to a Commission on Plastics in Human Health, chaired by Dr. Philip Landrigan of Boston College. He says plastics contain harmful chemicals that get into our bodies from the environment 
and from our direct use. Exposures to these chemicals during the nine months of pregnancy and in the first couple of years of childhood are especially dangerous because exposure to these toxic chemicals can damage a child's health over the next seven or eight decades. Landrigan says poor communities suffer most from fumes released during manufacturing and from waste that piles up in landfills or gets incinerated. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The Plastics Industry Association says plastics have vital uses. It says alternative materials would increase overall consumption of energy and lead to more carbon emissions. In Everett, two school district administrators are suing Mayor Carlo Di Maria, the city and its school committee. Superintendent Priya Tahiliani and Deputy Superintendent Kim Sai allege racism, sexism, and retaliation after the school committee voted this month not to renew Tahiliani's contract. The pair say they've been treated worse than other school officials because they're both women of color and because Tahiliani hired several administrators of color. City officials are declining to comment on the suit. For the first time, next year's Women's Beanpot Championship will be played at the TD Garden. The title and consolation games in the college hockey tournament will be played there. Previously, only men's beanpots were held at the home of the Bruins. Women's teams competed on rinks on college campuses. Supporters of the change call it a step toward equality for women's sports. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Some clouds will move in tonight. It won't get super cold. The low will be around 39 degrees. Tomorrow should be partly sunny with temps in the low 50s. We can expect showers Thursday with the greatest chance of rain in the afternoon. The high Thursday will be in the upper 50s. Friday looks mostly cloudy. Temperatures will be in the 50s again. It's 57 degrees right now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise, streaming at britbox.com/npr. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Zequil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And here in Los Angeles County, public schools are closed today. Basically, all of the support staff that keeps these schools running, people like custodians, the cafeteria workers, the bus drivers, they are on strike, fighting for wage increases and respect, among other issues. Many of these workers earn less than $25,000 per year, and many work part-time schedules. Their union is now in mediation with the school district. And Los Angeles Unified School District Superintendent Alberto Carvalho joins us now. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being with us. So tell me, what has your day been like so far? Like, have you seen any of these picket lines yourself at the schools or at the bus depot in Van Nuys? Have you talked with any of the strikers? Uh, I actually have. Uh, You know, I... uh, we had a closed session with the board today to iron out uh, some of the issues and refine some of our final proposals. And that's done with our school board. But uh, before that, uh, I was actually on the streets. I went to a food distribution 
uh, we set up uh, dozens of uh, sites to distribute food to our students, considering the level of poverty in our community, where 75% of our kids really depend on, on the free breakfast, lunch, and snack mm -hmm. that we provide mm -hmm. in schools. Uh, so I was out there in the field. Uh, I met a lot of vol volunteers. I came across some of our valuable, indispensable workforce members who are currently picketing. And uh, look, I understand their frustration. I understand uh, uh, the hurt, uh, which goes back many, many years. We are a new team that, quite frankly, is trying to rectify some degree of uh, historical injustice when it comes to compensation for some of the lowest wage earners in our community. Well, let's talk about some of these people that you call valuable, valuable members of your team. These people on strike, I mean, these are the workers who've been on the front lines throughout the pandemic, cleaning schools, keeping kids safe and fed. And a lot of them say, you know, all of this, it, it comes ultimately down to respect. And I want to play for you some remarks from Conrado Guerrero, the president of the Local 99 chapter of the Service Employees International Union, which is the union that's on strike. Enough of the disrespect. We refuse to be invisible. We refuse to be silent. We are ready to fight. And we are proud to be joined by teachers who are striking in solidarity with us. Tell me, how can your district show these workers that they are valued, that they are respected? I think that's the most important question that we have to answer. Uh, so we have been at the table. And because of those historic injustices and inequities specific to compensation and, in my opinion, disparate treatment, uh, that is why we initiated this battery of negotiations with an historically high uh, compensation proposal, which right now is at 23% across the board for these employees, in addition to a 3% bonus cash in hand in recognition of their efforts with additional runway, meaning additional resources to put on the table to continue to negotiate. Uh, at no point in the history of LAUSD has there been uh, that level of offer, nor am I aware of any type of contract settlement in the state of California or across the country that would reach that level. I think that is the strongest definition of respect, particularly for those people who earn very little in one of the costliest uh, cities in the country where the cost Absolutely. of housing, the inflation... Well, let me ask you, because we're not only going to be talking about the support staff, the teachers union is also negotiating a new contract mm -hmm. this year. Last time they did this was in 2019 with one of your predecessors. Right. And if you'll recall, teachers went on strike with broad support from the public. So how are you going to avoid a second strike this year? Well, I think uh, we need to recognize where we are and how far we can go, considering uh, also a very stark state economic reality uh, where the forecasts are not uh, very positive. Uh, the difference uh, between 2018-19 and today is that uh, right at the beginning, our first offer uh, to our teachers represented by UTLA is far higher than what it was back in in 2018, uh, teachers went to strike on a 6% demand. Uh, we right now at the table are uh, significantly above that percentage demand, in addition to a whole host of workplace conditions that I think are favorable to our teachers. So the conditions are different, and we are okay. right now in meaningful conversations and negotiations right. with the teachers' union. We, we want kids to, to be in school. leave it there. Thank you so much. That is Los Angeles Unified School District Superintendent Alberto Carvalho. Thank you.
Changing gears now to tell you that three years ago, when COVID-19 lockdowns began, the all-volunteer, full-contact sport of roller derby was among the first to shut down. Now, skaters are getting back on track. For member station WVIA, Sarah Sinto reports on a national tournament held in Pennsylvania for the first time since before the pandemic. Donita Green has just finished her first roller derby bout at the Battle of the All-Stars tournament. She's grinning and glowing, even as she says her whole body hurts. Like from, from my head down, everything hurts right now, but it's a good hurt because we did it. We did the thing. Green, or as she's known on the track, Blacksel Rose, is a blocker for Black Diaspora Roller Derby, a borderless team of skaters from across the country competing against all-star teams representing more than 20 states at the tournament in Scranton. Now, you might be picturing the televised roller derby of the 80s and early 90s, with skaters throwing elbows and racing around a banked track. But that's not quite what roller derby looks like today. Black diaspora skater Alexis Edmonds, or Punky Pie, is a jammer. They're the ones who score the points. Four blockers who are trying to block the jammer, who is kind of like simultaneously the quarterback and the ball. And so they're trying to get around everybody and score points while the blockers are trying to prevent them from doing that. It's still hard hitting, but elbowing is illegal. There are referees, penalties, and plenty of strategy. This was Black Diaspora Roller Derby's first appearance at the tournament and the first Battle of the All-Stars for Blacksel Rose. She started skating in 2017 at the age of 36, but had to stop two years later after breaking her neck and arm in a car accident. And so in that year, I never thought I'd skate again. I slowly started to skate a little bit after the pandemic calmed down and never thought that I would, at that point, just. I thought I would just skate a little bit. Skating at Battle of the All-Stars, or BOTAs as most skaters call it, was a comeback Blacksel Rose never saw coming. And never even dreamed that I would be sitting here saying I skated my first ever BOTAs match. More than 600 skaters and 100 officials descended upon Scranton for the tournament. When they weren't on the track, they screamed and cheered for friends from across the country, gathering close for the best views. There's really nothing else like it that I can think of for, for us as women. And then on top of that, you get to do that with family and friends and people that support you and high five you every time you come off the track. Almost anyone who experiences this is going to keep coming back for those reasons. Black Diaspora Roller Derby took home the bronze medal at Battle of the All-Stars. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Sinto in Scranton. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Turkey, there is public anger over unsafe construction practices after the earthquakes last month caused thousands of deadly building collapses. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports that in addition to people digging through the rubble, there are volunteers collecting evidence, including some social media influencers using their platforms. Journalist Yasemin Jandemir used to cover women's rights, but after facing pressure not to publish sensitive stories, she turned to posting beauty advice on Instagram, things like face mists and vitamin E. She knew that as her followers grew, she could someday turn their attention to pressing matters. 
I may be quiet for some time, but I raise my voice when it is needed. Now she's one of many in Turkey from different walks of life, using their social media accounts to spread awareness about the shoddy construction practices behind many of the buildings that collapsed in last month's earthquake. She spoke to us on Zoom from her apartment in Istanbul. She says she began investigating collapsed buildings by contacting local reporters in the earthquake zone and asking them to send her information on contractors and building inspectors. Relatives of earthquake victims also started contacting Jandamir. A young man whose father died reached me. The man's father was one of eight people killed when his building collapsed in Gaziantep. The building's contractor was arrested. I told him, go there and take pictures. Try to take detailed pictures. Then send them all to me. I'll show some of the technical details to a friend who is a civil engineer. I also visited the site of that destroyed building. These two hulking earth movers are collecting enormous piles of rebar. It's not ripped. These are, this is just smooth. Wonder if that's a sign of, of cheap construction material. I took photos and sent them to John Demir. She sent them to a civil engineer who said it actually wasn't rebar at all. It was substandard building material. John Demir isn't the only one collecting evidence. The Turkish Bar Association has an app called Rubble Radar. Survivors can use it to upload photos of collapsed buildings. Lawyers are preparing a raft of lawsuits. John Demir says she's investigated more than 60 buildings and has found some patterns. She says most of the collapsed buildings she's researched were new luxury apartment complexes built in the last decade when the government privatized building inspections. Till recently, contractors could pay companies to inspect their buildings. She says the system was prone to corruption. And she says she's traced contractors' connections with local municipalities and Turkey's ruling party. The government says it's making arrests and investigating hundreds of suspects connected to building collapses. But John Demir says responsibility lies with how the country is run now, with power concentrated at the top. She says in English. If you ask who is responsible, I will say the one who broke away from the parliamentary and democratic system it is a form of management based on a single person without control mechanism. There can be consequences to voicing such criticism. Turkish media report that local broadcasters were fined for airing criticism of the government's earthquake preparation. John Demir says Instagram trolls threatened to report her to the government. I asked her why she's determined to keep posting about building wreckages. Wake up to... Turkish people. To wake up the Turkish people. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. This is All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6 on All Things Considered, what analysts are saying about Chinese leader Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow, which wrapped up today. Join NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro this Sunday, March 26th at City Space. He'll be talking with WBUR's All Things Considered host, Lisa Mullins, about his new memoir and tales from his storied broadcast career. Tickets at WBUR.org events. In sports, the Red Sox fell to the Orioles 
6-2 at spring training today. Tonight, the Bruins face the Ottawa Senators at the Garden, hoping to extend their three-game winning streak, and the Celtics visit the Sacramento Kings. Robert Williams returns to play after being out since early March with an injury. It'll be partly cloudy tonight. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. We'll see the sun through the puffy clouds tomorrow. It'll be around 52 degrees. Thursday, we'll have some showers and temps in the upper 50s. Then Friday, mostly cloudy in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Killishand Honors College, presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson, April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me... No problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. A $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News is turning the network on its head. The lawsuit involves lies that Fox News broadcast following the 2020 presidential election. A senior producer and key witness in that case has now also sued Fox. She says Fox is trying to scapegoat her and that its lawyers misled her when they prepared her to testify under oath. And Fox initially sued her right back, accusing her of releasing confidential information. For more, we turn now to NPR media media correspondent David Folkenflik. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Wow, the drama keeps going. Okay, so who is this producer and why is she so pivotal in this defamation lawsuit against Fox? So her name is Abby Grossberg. She's a senior producer on Tucker Carlson's big show in primetime. But back in November 2020, at the time of the elections and the subsequent weeks, she was producer for Maria Bartiromo in a booker. Uh, you know, she she was part of this conversation or this exchange that happened when Sidney Powell, who, as you may remember, went on Fox to promote mm-hmm. these completely baseless claims of election fraud that supposedly cheated then-President Trump of the election, Sidney Powell forwarded this memo to Marita Bartiromo that said, uh, you know, this is the basis of all these allegations that were entirely unsubstantiated even in the memo and that even the memo's author called wackadoodle. Uh, in sworn statements in response to questions under oath from lawyers for the Dominion Voting Systems, which has this huge uh, depos- uh, defamation case against Fox, Abby Grossberg said it wasn't credible. She also said the network had no responsibility to correct falsehoods that were promoted on the air, like these election lies. This is pretty damning because the, vo- the suit brought by Dominion accuses Fox of spreading damaging lies it knew to be false. Right. Okay. And Grossberg now says Fox's lawyers misled her. Exactly how? Well, she uh, was uh, questioned under oath back in September, and she prepped, according to her account in her lawsuit, hard. She says Fox's lawyers and legal team made her believe she should give evasive answers under oath and that her colleagues after her, her sworn testimony celebrated the fact she had done done so, that she had evaded the questions. She says male colleagues were given the opportunity to review and correct their transcriptions and depositions soon after questioning. She said she was celebrated uh, basically for protecting, for example, Tucker Carlson when he was was being questioned about how he talked about women and when turned out to be some pretty vile and degrading terms. And what does Fox say in response to the allegations? 
Well, it's pretty interesting. You know, I should note that Grossberg's lawsuit is more broadly and more specifically about a culture of rampant sexism at Fox, both the sexism that she says she and Maria Bartiromo and others experience as women there, but also the sort of uh, bro fraternity created on Tucker Carlson's show uh, based on gender and on religion. Fox pushes against back against all of this. It says it investigated her concerns about workplace harassment, about uh, questions of inequity, and that she complained after a critical performance review. It also calls her allegations against the, the about the law firm baseless. But, you know, there's a historical echo here about Fox being sued in the past by female uh, staffers and stars over sexual harassment. So that's something that Fox has thought was long buried and is coming back. That is NPR's David Folkenflik. Thank you, David. You bet. There's drama brewing in the golf world over a new golf ball for professional male golfers. Why a new golf ball? Well, the pros are driving balls way farther than they did in the past, in part due to better golf equipment. And that is changing the character of some of the sport's classic courses. NPR's Gus Contreras reports on the history of the game and where it could be headed next. Golf equipment has evolved a lot through the years. And that's where he's headed, just a little bit right of it, but this ball appears to be hammered. Clubs used to be made with wood, and the original ball was made out of leather, stuffed with goose feathers. A far cry from the modern tech that utilizes titanium drivers and highly engineered golf balls. If you go all the way back to when Tiger Woods first entered the professional golf scene in the late 90s, you know, that was, in my opinion, when equipment had this massive spike in technology. That's Jonathan Wall, managing editor for equipment at golf.com. And I think that's when the governing bodies started to take a closer look and say, all right, the ball's maybe going too far now. So what are we going to do to help rein back in distance? The solution back then was to stretch out classic golf courses to their maximum distances. In theory, to make it more challenging for the long hitters. But now the sustainability of that model is being questioned. Longer courses need more attention, land, and water. So the new proposed solution is to create two separate golf balls, one for professionals and one for the everyday player. They don't want the pro ball to go as far as it currently does. A typical drive would be 20 yards shorter. The best example is like in baseball. There's a wooden bat used in major leagues and a metal bat used in college and recreational play. The wooden bats require that extra bit of skill to pound the ball 300 plus feet. There's many factors that go into this, and I don't believe the golf ball should have been singled out. Professional golfer Billy Horschel was speaking on the No Laying Up podcast. He's won many tournaments. Yes, distance has increased on the PGA Tour. There's no doubt about that. We are making a, a change for 0.1% of the golfers in the world. Horschel disagrees with the proposed rule change. He doesn't think there's a problem with distance or the ball. But at the local level, where the majority of recreational golfers play, there's a trickle-down effect, says Will Smith. He's co-founder of National Links Trust, the nonprofit organization that manages the three public golf courses in Washington, D.C., including East Potomac Golf Links. Smith points out that this course is almost outdated now. 18 full holes opened in 1923, so here we are 100 years later, and we're trying to build a golf course that can then challenge and be interesting to golfers who hit the ball probably on average 30, 40, 60 yards further. Smith and his organization plan to renovate the D.C. courses, including making some holes longer 
to stay relevant with modern equipment. Because when people make their decisions about where they want to play golf, one of the things they look, like, look at is, is yardage, and rightly or wrongly. Someone who's really good at golf might think that that's not a, a worthy test. Golf equipment companies are in the business of helping people hit the ball further and argue the new pro ball will take the fun out of the game. Again, Jonathan Wall. Everybody's been playing the same golf ball for eons. So to now tell them that there's going to be a pro ball and an amateur ball, it's just something that doesn't compute with a sport that's steeped in history. Golf's ruling bodies hope to finalize a new ball by 2026, but are making it clear. This change won't stop long drives or affect the weekend golfer. For now, Gus Contreras, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. Get ready for extended overnight road work on the Mass Pike in Boston. There will be nightly rolling roadblocks and lane closures on both directions of the pike near Fenway Park between tonight and October between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. as crews build a residential office and retail development over the highway. It's coming up on 6 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club, waterstonelexington.com, and Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Russian and Chinese presidents have wrapped up two days of discussions in Moscow. Putin is binding Russia's future to China, but there's a risk that in doing so, Russia can lose control of its own destiny. It's Tuesday, March 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered.
Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll have the latest on the highly watched state visit. Also, school workers in Los Angeles, including custodians, cooks, and bus drivers, are on strike, and teachers have walked out of the classroom to support them. And researchers from Boston College and around the world call for international regulation of plastics in order to protect people's health. The people who live near the factories that produce plastic are exposed to the toxic chemicals that those factories vent into the air. Those of us who use plastic every day in our lives are exposed to chemicals that leach out of plastic. We'll talk with BC's Dr. Phil Landrigan. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A grand jury in Virginia has returned an indictment charging 10 people with second-degree murder in the death of a state mental hospital patient. Whitney Evans with member station VPM has more. A video of Ivo Otieno's death appears to show sheriff's deputies and hospital workers piling on to the 28-year-old before he died earlier this month. The prosecutor who filed the charges alleges the handcuffed and shackled Otieno was asphyxiated by the weight of at least seven people on his body after being dragged into a hospital admissions room. However, the medical examiner has not yet made an official ruling on the cause of death. Attorneys for two of the defendants filed a motion to stop the video's release. However, the Washington Post published links to the video that had been inadvertently included in public court documents. For NPR News, I'm Whitney Evans in Dinwiddie, Virginia. President Biden announced two new national monuments today as part of conservation efforts. That is Avikwami and Kastner Range in Texas joining the lineup of more than 100 national monuments. NPR's Amanda Bustillo is more. The announcement is a part of the administration's conservation efforts. The new national monuments will lead to the protection of nearly 514,000 acres of public lands. We're protecting the heart and the soul of our national pride. We're protecting pieces of history, our, 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 telling our story that will be told for generations upon generations to come. The designation of Avi Kwame in Nevada was first previewed during the Tribal Nations Summit in Washington, D.C. in October. Advocates in Texas have long been calling for Kastner Range to be included. Biden also recommended the Commerce Department create additional protections for land around Hawaii and the Pacific Islands. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, the White House. One of Northern Ireland's biggest political parties has said it will vote against new post-Brexit trading arrangements that have been negotiated with the European Union. Bill Marx reports their vote in Parliament tomorrow could derail the deal. The Democratic Unionist Party said it remained concerned about Northern Ireland's position inside the United Kingdom, so will vote no. That's despite local politicians getting new powers to, in theory, prevent new European Union rules being applied to traded goods. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak negotiated the new agreement with the EU and now hopes a parliamentary majority approves it. Reporter Willem Marks. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she expects the banking sector to stabilize without the kind of problems seen during the 2008 financial crisis. Yellen, in an address to the American Bankers Association in Washington today, saying that following the collapse of two banks, one in California, the other in New York, additional rescues could be warranted, but she said the overall sector appears to be stabilizing. Increased optimism over bank shares sent stocks higher on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 316 points. The Nasdaq closed up 184 points. You're listening to NPR.
The United Nations says that violence and lawlessness continues unabated in Haiti. NPR's Ader Peralta reports the UN's Human Rights Agency finds 531 people have been killed there since the beginning of the year. UN Human Rights Agency spokesperson Martortado says at least 160,000 people have had to flee homes in this year alone. Clashes between gangs are becoming more violent and more frequent. Hurtado says the gangs are trying to expand their territory, so they're attacking civilians living in areas controlled by rivals. The UN says gangs are using sexual violence to subjugate and punish the population, and nearly half of Haitians don't have enough to eat. The de facto government of Haiti has asked the international community for help, but there has been a deadlock with no one, not the US, not Canada, not France, willing to lead a military force into Haiti. Ed Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. A Fox News producer claims the network coerced her testimony during deposition in a $1.6 billion libel lawsuit filed by a voting machine company. Dominion Voting Systems alleges Fox amplified false allegations its machines were able to change the results of the 2020 presidential election. Abby Grossberg, a former producer for Fox host Maria Bartiroma, filed a separate lawsuit contending Fox pressured to give misleading testimony during her deposition in the Dominion case. The network denies her allegations and countered with its own lawsuit seeking to bar Grossberg from sharing details from confidential discussions. Crude oil futures prices closed higher, oil up $1.69 a barrel today in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. An eviction prevention law in Massachusetts is set to expire at the end of the month. The state put it in place earlier in the pandemic. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports advocates for renters want the law extended. The law requires that eviction cases be paused when a tenant has an application pending for rental assistance. Andrea Park is an attorney with the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. She says the state should temporarily extend the law while lawmakers consider making it permanent. We're early in the legislative session, so until that bill has a chance to be debated and considered and go through its process of being heard, this is really just to try to get past the March 31st date without having a lot of people who are waiting on their rental assistance be evicted when there is a solution. Advocates have written House and Senate leaders and the trial court requesting an extension to July of next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to expand access to pre-kindergarten in the city. She's opening up applications for community child care providers to become universal pre-K partners. Later this month, family child care centers will be included in the expansion. In total, the city hopes to create 300 new seats in pre-K classes. New England Public Media in Springfield is laying off roughly 20 percent of its staff. The NPR affiliate and public television station broke the news to employees today. WBUR's Yasmin Amr has more. The layoffs affect 17 people. They include the team of the weekly television show Connecting Point. The station is ending the program. In a statement, NEPM management says the station faced financial headwinds during the last three years. Financial statements from 2021 to 2022 show that higher costs far outpaced any growth in revenue. In the last month, NEPM television and radio staff began a planned move into a new facility in downtown Springfield. The layoffs come as the network NPR prepares to lay off 10 percent of its staff this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer.
National Grid customers in Massachusetts will soon pay less for their electricity. State regulators today approved the company's request to lower its electric rates. National Grid says that will save the average residential customer more than $100 a month. The new rates go into effect May 1st and will be in place through the end of October. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The low shouldn't go lower than the upper 30s. Tomorrow is looking partly sunny. Temperatures will be in the low 50s. Then it'll get a bit wet overnight tomorrow and into Thursday with the greatest chance of showers Thursday afternoon and evening. Things should dry out for Friday as temperatures get into the 50s again under mostly cloudy skies. It's 57 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is All All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Russia's President Vladimir Putin and China's President Xi Jinping have wrapped up two days of discussions in Moscow. This is their second meeting since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Well, the two leaders vowed to conduct even more trade, to deepen other ties, to work together more closely. The backdrop to all of this is ties with the U.S., with the West in general, remain strained for both countries. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of our correspondents, John Ruich, who covers China for NPR, and Charles Maines, based in Moscow. Welcome, you two. Good afternoon. So this was a summit between China and Russia, but I gather the elephant in the room was Ukraine and the war there, and that China had arrived having put forth a set of principles for potentially trying to end the war. Did that go anywhere, John? Yeah, China's been styling itself as sort of a peacemaker, or at least a party that could help resolve, help solve the Ukraine crisis. It put forward this 12-point position paper, which were broad principles. There's also talk of Xi Jinping having a discussion with uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky after this Moscow visit. You know, Putin and Xi Jinping had seven hours of talks over two days. They made statements at the end. And it has to be said that Xi's remarks on Ukraine were very bland. He repeated that China wants peace. He said he's looking forward to more discussions on the matter. They basically had nothing to announce. Yeah, no, Putin came in acknowledging the Chinese plan, telling Xi in front of cameras that he had studied the Chinese proposals, he respected the ideas and was eager to discuss them. And yet it seemed like these talks ended with this peace initiative as vague and undefined as when they began. In a statement to the press, Putin said provisions of the Chinese peace plan could be taken as a basis uh, for settling the conflict in Ukraine whenever the West and Kiev were ready for it. But Putin added that Russia hadn't seen any evidence they were. So there's not a lot there, and perhaps it's not even surprising. Russia had made it clear it wants Ukraine to accept what Moscow calls the new geopolitical reality of its annexation of Ukrainian lands. Uh, Ukraine and its Western allies see the progress Ukrainian forces have made liberating territory from Russia and say, you know, why stop now? And there's a sense that she might have been able to force Putin to accept some sort of ceasefire or peace deal, but that clearly just wasn't the case. Okay, so sounds like uh, very little progress on Ukraine, alas. Charles, did they agree on anything? Any any major headlines here? Yeah, you know, fundamentally, this seemed to be about showing that China and Russia were united in grievance. You know, they both feel the West is trying to hold them down, and they're making common cause of it. 
The two sides signed this massive joint statement aimed at deepening the Russian-Chinese relationship for a, quote, new era, uh, while insisting it wasn't a military political bloc. Uh, in a dig at NATO, they said that that idea was an outmoded concept from the Cold War. And yet there were also a lot of agreements focusing on the economy, with Russia offering to provide, for example, gas, oil, and energy for China's economy. Also important to note what wasn't in the mix, uh, no public mention anyway of Chinese arms sales to Russia, although a Putin advisor said it was discussed uh, without elaborating. That's interesting. So Russia promising energy investments in China. We're not hearing Chinese arms sales to Russia. John Ruich, this sounds like a pretty good deal from China's perspective. Yes, it does. You know, more oil and gas from Russia is a good thing. The price is low now, given the way the Ukraine war has changed the market for Russian energy. Uh, there was a pledge to deepen coordination and resilience of production and supply chains. That's something China's uh, focused on. It's good for China. It helps diversify away from the West. Maria Repnikova is an expert in Chinese and Russian politics at Georgia State University, and she says China did well. Well, I think she got more out of it than Putin. Basically, China getting a better economic deal out of Russia at this point because Russia has so few allies left. More broadly, you know, as Charles points out, this meeting signaled pretty strongly that they're on the same page with regard to the West um, and that they've got each other's back. But I wonder, is the trade-off that they've got each other's back, but with every inch that China sidles closer to Russia, does that move it towards worse relations with the West? It probably does. Um, if there had been progress toward bringing the war in Ukraine to an end, that might have been a saving grace. It might have made the trip more palatable to many in the West. You know, Putin was just accused of war crimes uh, and there was an arrest warrant issued for him by the International Criminal Court. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken just yesterday said Xi Jinping's visit was effectively giving diplomatic cover to the Russian leader for that. Um, and the U.S., of course, still suspects China is considering providing lethal assistance to Russia in the war in Ukraine, which is a proverbial red line, right? China doesn't seem to care at this point. You know, Xi Jinping has said that the West, led by the U.S., is bent on encircling and suppressing China. And Beijing suspects the same is happening with Ukraine, uh, that they're using the war to weaken Putin, uh, which would be bad for China from Xi's perspective. Charles, what about from Putin's point of view? It strikes me that Putin doesn't have very many powerful friends right now in the world. How much does he need President Xi? How much does Russia need China? Badly. And in that regard, this was a win for Putin the moment she stepped off the plane. Here's Putin isolated with a warrant out for his arrest. And yet within a few days, he's sitting with Xi, who calls him a dear friend and compliments his leadership of Russia. But make no mistake, you know, Putin is the junior partner in the relationship. Russia is under Western sanctions. It desperately needs Chinese investment and trade to keep its economy afloat. And in fact, Putin was at times a bit over the top in his flattery of Xi, telling him, for example, he was a little envious of China's economic success. And that kind of gets to a criticism you hear here in Moscow, uh, that in binding Russia's future so closely to China, uh, Putin is in danger of losing control of Russia's own destiny. Stakes are so high here. Uh, John Ruich, you get the last word. What about um, President Xi? Now in his third term as the leader of China, what did we learn about him on this visit? She is stronger than ever, right? He, and he remains defiant. I think that was a message from this visit. You know, many believe that there had been signs a few months ago, perhaps a softer tone out of Beijing or some flexibility in China's approach to the West, maybe a willingness to cool the temperature, right, to get China's economy back on track. But with the spy balloon incident and now this trip to Moscow, it does seem that that has evaporated. That is NPR's John Ruich and Charles Maines. Thanks to you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. 
Hundreds of thousands of students stayed home today as a labor strike shut down Los Angeles public schools. The Union for Support staff, people like custodians and bus drivers, began a planned three-day walkout. And the teachers in the nation's second-largest school district joined them in support. At the center of this disagreement are demands for wage increases, better benefits, and fewer staffing shortages. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo takes us around Los Angeles today to the demonstrations and protests. The first day of the strike started dark and early at 4.30 a.m. outside the Van Nuys School Bus Depot. Even though the sun wasn't up yet and the sky was dumping rain, hundreds of bus drivers and supporters walked up and down the sidewalk, chanting for fair treatment. For many, like Maria Betancourt, they start every morning at this time at this very depot. I love that everybody came out even in the rain to support this uh, this cause, you know? We need we need everybody to come out. Betancourt and the other members of Service Employees International Union, Local 99, came out despite the weather because to them, this is important. They feel their demands for higher pay, increased staffing, and health benefits are the bare minimum. They're asking for a 30% raise spread out over four years, among other things. The district has offered 23% over five years with additional bonuses, but the union says that's not enough. The years-long fight for a new contract has left them feeling disrespected. I don't think that they're... They want to listen to us, our needs. A few hours later, the union's executive director, Max Arias, echoed those same concerns at a demonstration outside Robert F. Kennedy Community Schools in Koreatown. If LAUSD truly values and is serious about reaching an agreement, they must show workers the respect they deserve. We've had enough of empty promises. Workers are especially livid today because last night, both parties agreed to mediation, a confidential process meant to finalize an agreement. But before the union could get their team into the room, they found out that the superintendent's office had disclosed the news of negotiations to the media. The union then backed out, and the strike went ahead as planned this morning. Arias says the move soured an already tenuous situation. The district needs to work to rebuild the trust, uh, but we're here, right? The, the goal is to to find a, to get a good contract, not to strike. 96% of members voted to approve the strike. One of those members was Yolanda Mems Reed, a special education assistant who says she works four jobs in order to afford to live in LA. I work for in-home supportive services. I do hair, and I also have an online boutique. To her. This raise would mean everything. It means being out of below the poverty line. And it means letting go of one of those jobs so I don't have to spend all my time working. I can spend some time with my family. Since many of the union's workers are part-time, it leaves them in precarious positions during the off-season. During the summers, managers don't want to hear that you don't got pay to pay rent, that you don't make money. They don't want to hear that. So you get the notices and you get evicted and you go a couple of maybe sometimes a couple of months without a place to stay, staying with family and friends until you find a new place. And then the cycle repeated itself for three years for me. Superintendent Alberto Carvalho says he's sympathetic to the position many workers have been stuck in and hopes that there's still room for a resolution. We are much closer than we've ever been before, but being that close is not enough. And uh, I believe there's enough goodwill to bring us to the table and to see through towards a solution that considers the employees, considers the students, but also acknowledges the fiscal reality ahead. 
Carvalho says the district's finances cannot survive such an increase. So uh, we have to be cautious in the way we use the resources, not overcommitting, uh, possibly putting the district in a bankruptcy position that not only is it not prudent, it is illegal in the state of California. For now, students and parents face the unfortunate reality of two more days with schools closed. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, Los Angeles. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for spending some of your evening with us here on WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace at 6.30, rent prices have been rising somewhat slowly for the last nine months, except in the lowest price tier, why the cheapest rents are getting pricier faster. On Wall Street, stocks picked up some ground today. The Dow inched up almost 1%, or 316 points, ending up at 32,561. The S&P jumped 1.3%, and NASDAQ gained 1.6%. In business news, First Republic Bank rose nearly 30% in trading today. That follows a 47% drop yesterday. Investors have been trying to digest news from last week that 11 large banks were depositing $30 billion into First Republic, to prevent it from collapsing. Today, investors seemed to be reassured by comments from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She said the government is prepared to provide more guarantees for deposits if need be. It's 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. Some clouds will move in tonight. The low will be in the upper 30s. Tomorrow should be partly sunny with temps in the low 50s. We can expect showers Thursday with the greatest chance of rain in the afternoon. The high Thursday will be in the upper 50s. Then Friday, mostly cloudy with temps in the 50s. The temperature right now is hanging out at 57 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Plastics are ubiquitous in our daily lives and our environment. Single-use plastics like water bottles and shopping bags make up more than a third of all plastics. An international commission led by researchers at Boston College published a sweeping report today that says plastics are causing such harm to our health, it's time for global leaders to regulate them. The chair of that commission is Dr. Philip Landrigan. He's a pediatrician and epidemiologist whose previous research led to major changes surrounding lead and pesticides. Landrigan directs the Global Observatory on Planetary Health at Boston College. He says scientists are expressing urgency about plastics because production has accelerated rapidly. More than 8,000 megatons have been produced since World War II. More than half of that has been made in the last 20 years. And the production rate is projected to treble by between 2050 and 2060. 
And part of that is driven, the report says, by fossil carbon producers looking for ways to make up for some of what they're losing in our broader move away from fossil fuels. Is that correct? That, that's right. You have to understand that 99% of plastic comes from coal and oil and gas from fossil carbon. And the very same companies that extract coal and oil and gas from out of the ground are also the companies that make plastic and that make fuels. Global demand for carbon fuels is going down, and they need to find markets for those. One of the markets to which they're pivoting are plastics. So the commission you chair is made up of scientists, clinicians, policy analysts from around the world. It formed last year after the United Nations Environment Assembly adopted a resolution that calls for the first ever legally binding international treaty on plastic. And your group, the commission, spent months putting together this report that goes into incredible detail. So let's touch on some of the main points. First, we're exposed to chemicals from plastics in lots of different ways, from the environment to our direct use of plastic. Can you touch on different ways we're exposed to the chemicals in it, how they get in our bodies, and the different ways they can harm our health? Yeah. So people in this country are exposed to the toxic chemicals in plastic at every stage of the plastic life cycle. So, for example, the people who live in small towns in Pennsylvania or Oklahoma, where fracking is widespread, are exposed to all the toxic chemicals that are released into the air during fracking, which is the first step, really, in plastic manufacture. And then the people who live near the factories that produce plastic are exposed to the toxic chemicals that those factories vent into the air. Those of us who use plastic every day in our lives, we and our children are exposed to chemicals that leach out of plastic during use uh, in, into our food, into our drinking water. Um, from our clothing. And then in terms of health impacts, I know there's a, a huge range of potential impacts. Can you touch on just a few of those? Well, many of the chemicals that are in plastic are highly toxic. They include chemicals that can cause cancer. They include chemicals that can damage the developing brains of children in the womb. They include chemicals that can disrupt endocrine function and immune function. And exposures to these chemicals during the nine months of pregnancy and in the first couple of years of childhood are especially dangerous because even very, very small doses of exposure to these toxic chemicals in early life can damage a child's health over the next seven or eight decades. Right. I was shocked when I read in the report that there are more than 10,000 chemical additives used in plastics at this point. That's right. And that's almost 10,000 is almost certainly a conservative estimate. What do you think we should do as individuals and families to limit our use of plastics and reduce our body's exposure to the chemicals in plastics? I think that we as individuals should do what we can. We, we should try to switch from plastic disposables to glass or metal containers, for example, in, in the kitchen, in our homes. As a pediatrician, one of my mantras is never microwave in plastic because when you heat the plastic up, that accelerates the movement of toxic chemicals out of the plastic container and into the food. What you need to do is take the food out of the plastic container and put it into a, a glass or a ceramic container before you put it in the microwave. So the commission is pushing for a global plastics treaty, and you want that to regulate plastics and end plastic pollution by 2040. How specifically do you want to see that happen? Well, first and foremost, an agreed-upon global cap on plastic production. 
Secondly, steps need to be taken to reduce the toxicity of the chemicals that go into plastic. Thirdly, we need to find better ways to manage plastic waste. Uh, we need to increase the recycling rate from 8% to 10 times that. And fossil fuel companies and the companies that make plastic need to be financially responsible for their products even after they sell them, which means they have to have tape backs or deposits or pay into a remediation fund to handle plastic waste after it's created. We are arguing that the industry has to take responsibility for the cradle-to-grave handling of the materials that they produce and sell. Dr. Phil Landrigan is a pediatrician, epidemiologist, and director of the Global Observatory on Planetary Health at Boston College. He chairs an international commission that published a report today in the Annals of Global Health, urging action to regulate plastics worldwide. Dr. Landrigan, thanks so much for joining us. Lynn, thank you. We reached out to the Plastics Industry Association for their reaction to the report. In a written response, they say any international agreement should emphasize recycling and recovery methods that reduce plastic waste. And the association says plastics have countless vital uses, while alternative materials would increase overall consumption of energy and other resources, leading to more carbon emissions. The industry association says plastics are safe and that manufacturers take human health seriously and believe in producing sustainable products. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Well, the spring-like weather will hang out for the next few days, and that means a mix of sunshine and rain. It'll be partly cloudy tonight, temps in the upper 30s. We'll have sun and lots of puffy clouds tomorrow. It'll be around 52 degrees. Thursday, showers and temperatures in the upper 50s. Then Friday should be mostly cloudy in the low to mid-50s. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com.